You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for listening. It is Friday, the 8th of July. Not long until I take a little summer holiday, but frankly, I may as well be on one now because it is the most perfect day on the July course. This always seems to be the case when I'm sitting alongside Lydia Hislop (laughs) doing this podcast on a Friday at the races. What a terrible life we lead. Uh, It's a gorgeous day, isn't it? It started off much more overcast yesterday and ended up being a beautiful evening. Today, I think it's going to be an absolute scorcher. And at the moment, we're sitting in the stand here at Newmarket on the July course, looking across the race course to the uh, marquees on the far side under the trees. And there's a mixture of of trees and colours. And we can see across the whole of the July course and over to the Roly Marl. It's absolutely beautiful. And you can see a a heat haze over the Devil's Dyke at the moment. And it's only... 10 o'clock <laughs> so it's going to be properly warm factor 50 this afternoon no doubt about that and if michael prosser hasn't put gallons of water on this track overnight there might be a few track records that are threatened because the the ground was pretty quick yesterday and they were starting to run some quite fast times yes and we ended up without aiden o'brien's runner in the july stake i spoke to ryan moore as he was going out to ride in the last race and he said that there was a view about little big bear yes he had handled the fast ground at ascot but that aiden was minded that he didn't want him to run on very fast ground so quickly immediately afterwards he didn't think it would be Mm. good for his long-term development okay interesting okay there we are then well that sort of cleared that one up um, it leads us neatly on, really, to one of the star performances of yesterday, Persian Force. And I wonder whether we really gave the horse enough credit at the time for the victory because he was two to one on. I watched it again. Very, very impressive. How surprised were you, if at all, that Richard Hannon was talking in terms of him being a, a 2000 Guineas horse next year? Well, he said that after he was gutted and the horse crossed the line in second at Royal Ascot, that his dad rang him up immediately and said that horse will win the 2000 guineas. So it sort of softened the blow of defeat. This horse was tremendously dominant, the winner at all stages uh, last year. Obviously, he's the son of Memas. There is plenty of speed on the dam side of the pedigree, but there's enough, isn't there, to, to make you think that he, that, that he could stretch out to a mile? And I would have thought that Memas might have been able to stretch out to a mile had he stayed in training. And let's face it, there have been plenty of Hannon horses in the past who appear to be more sprinty types that have gone on and done very well yes. over distances of seven or a mile, the Camford Cliffs and Paco Boy and all sorts of horses that you, you know, come to hand quite early as two-year-olds. One of the, the trademarks of their training operation over the years has, has been how well they quite literally train horses. They are well-drilled and mm-hmm. professional mm-hmm. and sharp and they don't pull too hard and... Yeah, that, that's, that, I've always, that's always struck me. Yeah, I think, that, I think that's right. And if anything, I mean, th- these days they then go on as well. So quite often the, the trademark was they're going to be very professional first time and they're going to catch a load of pot- potentially better horses out. But I think they've, there's a, a been a huge wide upgrading of quality and these horses sustain and develop the point that you've made there. Horses that you would expect to be, say, maximum seven furlongs have actually turned out to be top class milers. And that, that's a, that, what they've managed to do re- with repeated horses. Now, it's been slightly best of times, worst of times 
for Richard Hannon this oh, week yeah. because that was a seventh win for their team in this race in the last decade and a very impressive one. He's got really good chances through the rest of the weekend as well, but he's been slapped with a big fine and and more than a slap on the wrist as well verbally from the from the BHA over the arsenic case that we featured on this podcast about three weeks ago now. Uh, this is a, a fairly old case of a horse called O Herbert's Reign who tested positive with a, a massive reading for, for arsenic. The Hannans traditionally have fed a lot of seaweed in their feed and it was thought, it has been thought by the BHA that this is where it was coming from. It's quite an interesting case this lady and not one that it's easy to get to the bottom of. No, it's, it's, it's really difficult. So um, Richard Hannon was saying, as you've just said there, that this, is, this supplement, this seaweed supplement, has been fed for generations, his father and his grandfather before him, to all, all the string. And this uh, came up when the string was tested for a different reason at Richard Hannon's um, request. Um, initially, David Sykes, who was then the director of, of equine regulation at the, um, at the BHA, of equine welfare, sorry, at the BHA, um, he advised Richard Hannon to, to stop feeding this supplement or to scale down the, the feed that he was, he was giving. But at the time, um, these horses weren't over the threshold. So there wasn't a clear indication that he should absolutely stop, that this was the advice to scale down or stop. But at, the, at that point, it wasn't an issue. And it was uh, something that had been practised at the yard for generations without any issue. So then there was this huge spike, as you said, a horse that finished last, by the way, last of five. Um, and it's really hard to understand why there was this massive spike in in one horse but the BHA argued that when uh, Hannans eventually took that advice from David Sykes and and either uh, either stopped feeding the supplement or uh, dialed down the dosage that immediately the um, amount of trace arsenic in the systems were well, went back to being well below threshold so it's really hard to extract exactly what went on no pun intended yeah exactly um and you know, richard hannon's spoken about it fairly openly uh, as well and it'll be interesting to see what happens moving forward i was very interested in a point you made to me about a university college dublin study trying to separate out um the the incidence of arsenic organically and inorganically now i'm not a chemist but i'm guessing organically means occurring in say seaweed for example and inorganically is if you go back to the episode we did a few weeks ago uh, arsenic an odd case this was um harry fry mm -hmm. uh, with the horse who tested positive for arsenic who'd been licking creosote in his box yeah and there are cases of both around the world of uh, i think there was a case of several horses who had been doing the equivalent of, of of chewing on on wood which had creosote on it and i think there's also been um horses in ireland uh, which have been fed the seafood extract as well so this is not a one-off for Richard Hannon. All of these things came up, uh, Richard was saying yesterday, um, during the course of the case, including that paper that was, that was, that was cited uh, by his, his barrister. Um, and his, his point really was this, was, this was a lot of expense, you know, to disqualify a horse that had finished last in sort of September 2019, and we're finally getting around to sorting it out in, in July 2020. But one of the reasons I think that they went for the upper end of the immediately available penalties, now there was ability to go much higher than that, and yeah. the BHA were clearly arguing, their barrister was arguing that that, that should be the case, is because um, Richard Hannon in the past has paid fines of 2,000, 5,000 and 8,000 in connection with three unintentional positives for metabolites of the painkiller 
tramadol dating back to 2015. So I think that would seem to be, from what we know uh, from, the, from the press reports, as to be why uh, the panel was taking a hard line. Um, Brian Barker um, was quoted as saying, the rules must be upheld. He is the um, panel chair, the discipline panel chair, Brian Barker QC. The rules must be upheld and we are particularly concerned that this is not the first time Mr Hannan has appeared before the disciplinary panel. That's, that's presumably yeah. why they went where they did. The interview with Richard Hannan yesterday was not your only interview where what I would what I would refer to as the extramural affairs were perhaps a bit more interesting than what was going on on the track. Is that is that a fair description of, of, of Frankie Dottori yesterday? Yes, Millard. Yes. Um, I thought he was very good. I thought he answered all your questions um, briefly, but but really well. And again, he played the, the bat dead straight. You can see the maker's name after he steered mighty Ulysses to victory and the rapprochement between he and Gosden was complete. Yeah. Ish. Um, I know a lot of people out there are bored by it. John Gosden himself reckons he was bored by it in, in the interview yesterday, but lots of people yeah, we, we, aren't. We don't have to talk that long about it. We, we've done it pretty comprehensively. We have, but the point I make and what I was going to make was if you want to draw a line and, under this story, then it, how Frankie Dottori handled that interview is the way to draw the line under the story. John Gosden, however, keeps sort of dangling little hooks out. And he did so again yesterday when he said he would have liked to have uh, conducted these conversations behind the scenes, but he was compelled to do it, do it openly out in the public. And I naturally asked, well, why were you compelled to do it out in public? And then he said he didn't want to answer that question. So, you know, if you want to put a line under it, uh, do the interview like Dottori would be my advice. OK, w- what we did see in the victory of Mighty Ulysses, I thought was an exhibition of... Uh, of smart, guileful, experienced jockeyship, as you'd expect from Dottori, because he was a horse who was doing a bit too much early. He took him away from the main body of the pack and then was just allowing him to get into a nice rhythm and kept enough up his sleeve for when he was challenged. And clearly, I mean, you know, uh, Frankie Dottori has dealt with pressure all the way through his career. You know, that's what he, he thrives upon. But there was pressure on that ride. Everybody was watching it for all the extemporaneous reasons that you have just cited, you know, the extracurricular stuff. And it was... As you say, guileful. Um, it's a word quite often you'd associate with some of Frankie Dottori's best rides, aren't they? It's bringing all of that experience into play and knowing, you know, where to position, how to respond, or even how not to respond right right away. So many elements of the way that he rides are obviously to do with his huge talent. You know, the fact that he's still so sharp and fit, you know, and but the, the amount of experience he brings is just unmatched, I think. I mean, I just wish you as a media member would just stop whipping this up into something <laughs> that it's not, you know? Come on. Today he rides in spiral in the foul mistakes. And aren't you glad that they got it out of the way yesterday with Mighty Ulysses? I'm not, you know, in a listed race rather yeah. than in a group one and it allow us just to focus on in spiral today. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? She clearly, together with Homeless Song, stands clear, head and shoulders above the rest of her own generation. What we're not really sure is how good that generation is in terms of the Miling Phillies, how deep it is. Um, we'll have a slightly better idea today, I think, if she, if she completely blows this bunch away because they're not bad, the older Phillies. No, and Prima Baccio in particular is the, the kind of filly. I mean, it, you, you look at what she's actually got in the bag in terms of her black type, and I think that really underplays her ability. Uh, she's, she's much better than that. She's suffered some ill fortune in it more than once last season, but she's got a high-level ability. And you spoke to um, Ed Walker earlier in the week, and there are strong reasons to think that she's going to upgrade her Royal Ascot form quite significantly here today. So she will be a, a prime opponent for... 
in spiral in the Falmouth. Well, if I have a single biggest achievement on this podcast today, it'll be pinning down Charlie Johnston, who, with Father Mark, trained so many runners across so many continents and countries and racetracks this weekend that he must have to have eyes in the back of his head, plus the fact, Charlie, you're trying to deal with the July sales at the same time. Um, how do you fit it all in, is the obvious question. <laughs> with difficulty at this time of year, that's for sure. Uh, ever since the July Cup meeting shifted back towards the weekend, this this Saturday is always ringed in the calendar under the you know, most difficult day of the year generally. So um, yeah, and the uh, the the added uh, added excitement of a, of a runner in America has yeah really made it a, a bit of a logistical nightmare this weekend. But Touchwood, we've got all the places and all the horses and all the, all the people and all the horses in the places they need to be. I, I know your operations had a long-held reputation for being well-drilled and well-organised, and you got all your all your ducks in a row logistically. But who are the who are the people at, at Kingsley House who are who are sort of really responsible for that? Besides you and you and your own family, who are the who are the who are the sort of engine room, if you like, responsible for getting horses to the right places? Yeah, so we have three assistants now. Um, Jock Bennett is obviously well known in the industry; he's been with us for a long, long time, and, and won the Godolphin Awards a few years back. And he's now accompanied by Hayley Kelly, who's actually here at the sales, looking after our our sales team of horses, and Andrew Bottomley. So between the three of them, they're responsible for the logistics of, um, as we say, getting all the all the horses and people to the places they need to be. And this weekend, the furthest traveller goes to, to America to the to the Belmont Derby. Royal Patronage, who was second in the Dante for you, and and ran well. How do you think he did run in the Derby? He ran disappointingly. There's no, there's no getting away from it. Um, we had a lot of debates sort of beforehand about um, about the difficult draw he had in stall one. Uh, Willie Carson was very kind enough to give his time to, to Jason and talk through. Um, well, Jason said he couldn't get him off the phone once he got him going. Um, talked him through every derby for the last 50 years or so, and. Um, Jason actually gave him the perfect ride to the top of the hill to get into into a great position, but I thought the writing was on the wall halfway. Really, the horse wasn't travelling with any zest or um, any exuberance, and I could see that he was he was holding his pitch, but only under sufferance. So um, yeah, it was clearly a, a below par run. You know, didn't didn't go far enough into the race really to learn about trip or or things like that, but. Um, you know, his his dandy form got Frank's didn't it by the by the winner. Um, so it was it was clearly a, a below par effort from him. And back on a left handed flat track on nice quick ground down to, to ten furlongs again. Um when did you think, ah, this Belmont Derby could just be the ticket? To be honest it was mainly the, the high clear team that have come up with this with this plan. Um but as you know all the um all the criteria that you just listed, you know, they tick every box for him. So when they when they put the idea to us, um, it wasn't a difficult one for them to, to sell to us because, as you said, all the all the conditions are in his favour. And albeit maybe it was um, a, a slight sort of knee-jerk reaction to the to the run in the derby. You know, the feeling was you know, off the back of that. Maybe we are going to struggle to win at the highest level um, at home. And, and travelling further afield, so there might be better opportunities for him to, to strike at the highest level. 
at Highclere have got a busy weekend because you run Thunderous for them as well in a Group 3 at York tomorrow, for which he's a pretty short price off the back of what looked a fair effort at, at Sandown last time. He's had a little bit of a break. Did he need one? I think he did, yeah. Um, he had quite a tough sort of six-week period uh, through the early part of the season. Um, obviously ran in, in the Ormond and then the Yorkshire Cup and then the Henry II. And we just felt off the back of Sandown that you know there was quite a few tough races that had come in quick succession there and he needed a bit of a break so that's exactly what he's had and that would be the only sort of caveat i would be saying ahead of saturday obviously it's cut up into a into a three-runner race um but this is very much a, a stepping stone and a prep race after a break towards the goodwood cup which is um is, is next day and perhaps I've saved the best till last because you've got a very exciting two-year-old running in the superlative stakes, Lion of War. He he won by 10 lengths at Newcastle last time. Now, I'm not saying the race was anything special, but 10 length winners over seven furlongs as two-year-olds are, are, are pretty rare. How rare a sort of horse do you think he is? Yeah, I think, um, I, think I would have finished second on foot probably, so I'm, I'm not going to get too carried away with the, with the substance of the form. But having said that, I was actually stood down by the winning post um, on on the day, and I've never seen a horse actually ease down that dramatically and still in the race. You know, he he was pulling up um, half a furlong from the line. So uh, yeah, albeit he's he's won in fairly modest com- company twice, you, you couldn't help but be be very impressed and with the manner he's done it. And I know you've made much of the insight that Joe Fanning, your your stable rider, has given you as regards this horse and so many others. He is he's off with with pretty serious injury issues at the moment. How big a blow to the operation is that? Yeah, obviously it's possibly the worst time of year for it to to happen. Um, July is is a month that you know we associate with with hitting our best form and. Obviously, it's it's rounded off with the meeting that that means the most to us that um, you know we've been planning for for, for weeks already with um, with horses targeted at Goodwood. So yeah, difficult time for for us to, to miss him, but you know, I'm sure not half as difficult as it'll be for him to to sit in sit on the sidelines and watch. So um, yeah, tough tough timing for him, but fingers crossed he'll um, he'll make a full recovery. And I think um, the the sort of the added incentive of his um, his good friends, subjectivist, going through a rehab of his own at the same time. I think that's that's the sort of um, the carrot at the end of the at the end of the row that will um, will have Joe sort of working back to, towards. And obviously, John Gosden said he was very happy that Frankie Dettori was taking plenty of rides for you. Is that going to be a, a motif for the summer? Do you think at the big festivals? I guess Frankie is always someone that we we try and use at the, at the big meetings. I was I was messaging Willie you know, most days before in the run up to Royal Ascot, um, trying to see what races he'd be available in, and it just didn't marry up well. He was always in the races that we were in, so yeah, he's always on our on our radar for for these kind of meetings. He's ridden plenty of winners for us at, at the highest level, and. Um, yeah, he's riding in the first two races for us today before he jets away to um, to America himself, and we'll certainly be be looking to team up at Goodwood as well. Well, we'll need multiple jockeys in a lot of races. I'd expect. Charlie, thanks so much. Thank you. Cheers.
So Charlie Johnston there, sort of tying in a lot of the themes that we've already explored in this podcast so far. Uh, the Johnston's continuing use of Dottori, which will run on into Goodwood and beyond. Joe Fanning trying to get back it rather sweetly in tandem with his old friend subjectivist and give him something to, to, to aim at. I mean, that'd be quite something if they came back and won the Gold Cup again next year. And the Johnstons taking a horse on Highclere's suggestion over to, to Belmont Park, where Dottori is going to ride for Charlie Appleby. Appleby, whose forays to New York and other parts of the States was such a big feature of his success last year, Lydia. And that's where Yabir may now be headed again uh, to Saratoga. After his after his victory yesterday in the Princess of Wales Estates, maybe something of the night about him, or is he a horse that just needs the right setup and doesn't really have a turn of foot? A bit of both, I think. Really, um, I think he's not straightforward. I mean, he has started to dwell on occasions quite markedly. That is a bit of a concern. I do think you do have to catch him on a on a on a good day, and he needs a good setup. And yesterday he got a good setup, manufactured to a, to a large degree by Charlie Appleby. Had golden uh, global storm in the race, making sure that it was a, a good strong pace. And Yibir came through towards the end, you know, strongly. He likes that sort of setup. He likes the you know a, a strongly run going left-handed in America, all of those things, you know, really seem to, to suit him. He clearly doesn't like, I mean, he doesn't like the Roly Mile. We saw that, you know, earlier in the season. I don't think the... A lot of people don't. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> he, maybe, he, he maybe thinks it's a bit cold and somewhat soulless, prefers the, prefers the more bucolic, charming surrounds of the July course. I think his form would suggest that that, yeah. that, that is the case. He's a clever bugger, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> he is, because he's, he's won the Bahrain Trophy and now he's won the Princess of Wales' stakes. And yeah, um, I, I think he, 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 likes, he, likes, he likes what he likes. And there are many, many idiosyncrasies of uh, British tracks that aren't to his liking. Uh, we, we, you bowled the ball yesterday about whether Charlie Appleby might go for the King George. What I hadn't realised is that he'd withdrawn him from the, from the King George. Um, and, I, you know, like you, I thought, well, you know, he's a gelding. Adiar can't run. Hurricane Lane hasn't run very well now a couple of times this season. And obviously he's going to stick away from fast ground. Uh, but no, sticking to the American plan. Yeah, I, I, I see. I see that you, you, you try and do what's right for each individual horse. And um, I, I don't know what to make of Hurricane Lane at the moment after that horrible performance at St. Clue the other day. Such a disappointment. I mean, he, I guess he, he ran his heart out last year in the ledger, didn't he? And then backed up and did the same in the arc. And you wonder whether that's left a, a bit of a lasting legacy. Charlie was saying the ground was obviously a lot faster than given in the Grand Prix de saint Cloud. I haven't gone back and, and checked the times. He's of the view um, that obviously it was very fast ground at Royal Ascot um, and he, he backed off it. I mean, he's, he hits the ground hard. Um, you, I think that in many ways accounted for his defeat in, in, in the derby. The derby is never that fast. But even so, I think for him coming down that hill, it was still faster than he wanted. So he's going to be an autumn type campaign horse and he's going to try and get him back for, for those kind of things. I, I would entertain him with some cut in the ground personally on a, on a conventional track. There's a lot of good top class horses at the moment, aren't there, that are heavily contingent on not just, not just ground that isn't firm, but actually soft ground. I mean, Homeless Songs, it looks as that, though that's the case now, doesn't it? Um, Hurricane Lane... Well, we don't know with her, do we? I mean, of course, we know True Shan. Yeah. It has to have ground with a bit of dig in it. And it, it, there does seem to be sort of an unusually large amount of very good horses who just won't run on anything that doesn't have some sort of soft in it. Yeah. Um, do you think it's a modern malaise? Don't really know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying I meant to get psychologically my, in the well, trainers. May, not maybe, maybe. Um, I'm not trying to get my wooden spoon out. I think the 
I think the orthodoxy now is that tracks just shouldn't be fast ground, even if it's in the height of summer. I think that there are. I think the amount of trainers who believe that you should have good, safe, fast, flat racing ground, as we would call it, as it is today, is diminishing. And the amount of trainers who believe that you should you should always have a bit of dig in it is growing. Gosh, um, that's, that's my feeling talking to people. Well, I think it's playing out in action, so I think it, it could well be substantiated. I mean, I, I, there'll be a lot of people listening to this who'll be who'll find that disappointing. I find that disappointing as well. I, you know, I like to see horses showing their versatility, being able to prove themselves on a variety of different surfaces. Frankel did, um, and I like summer flat racing to be conducted on on fast ground. That seems to be you know pretty natural, you know, weather permitting. Um, so yeah, that that would concern. I mean, obviously, I get the welfare considerations. It has to be watered to the point where it is safe to be able to to race on. But obviously, watering can bring its own complications with the vagaries of the British weather. Mm. All right, let's talk about tomorrow's July Cup. We had a, a brief diversion there, but we were talking about Charlie Appleby's success yesterday. He's got two of the front four in the betting, the first and second in the Platinum Jubilee. Should should that be the departure point for this race, or are we right to look at a perfect power as the starting point the three-year-old i think it's arguable I, I think we're right to start with perfect power um because i think as a sprinter he looks very very good indeed um it was a really impressive performance in in the commonwealth cup but i've always been a a, a creative force fan i think he's a, a diligent little horse and i know he was he was done by his stable companion naval crown on opposite side of the track in the platinum jubilee but i thought he ran really well and is it is it possible that creative force is going to be more suited by more of a test of speed than naval crown who's sort of been reinvented as a sprinter having done most of his racing over seven and a mile i think so i think creative force will be be suited by that he was fifth in the in the race last year as a three-year-old he never quite got himself into a position the way the race developed to be able to deliver a challenge i think he'll, he'll be a more hardened more able horse this time around and i think he can upgrade it was quite and at the time it felt like a very deep july cup at the time it did I, i'm gonna take one right out of the back of the hand again except the thing is can a horse come up for me twice at huge odds in his career? <laughs> Go on. That's the... <laughs> I'm not sure. Oh, I, know, I know who you're going to say. I know who you're going to say. It's Emirati Anna. Yeah, 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 okay. Who did it at Haydock last year in the Sprint Cup, having been a brilliant second in the Nunthorpe, which no one had seemed to see. Uh, and he ran two horrid races in Maidan, but one of them he apparently had mucus down his throat. And if it starts badly for you in Dubai, it's unlikely to get better the next time. So he came back. I thought he ran all right in the platinum jubilee he was beaten by a lot more than he beat but he wasn't beaten miles he showed bright speed that stiff six at Asker is stretching him yeah for a horse who can finish second in a very fast nunthorpe last year i think this will be just about bang on if he acts on the track for him and if that's brought him forward new jockey as well just sometimes change it up makes a difference i like this argument because at his best he's right up there with the best of these isn't he uh, yeah not far off yeah um and it, last time he tried this race everything went wrong at the start mm. so throw that out and i totally agree that ascot six a, a stiff six stretches him what he really likes is a, a stiff five or a, a, an easy six and i think this will be ideal for him 33 to 1 is blatantly too big so i think that's a good shout personally <laughs> there we are well, they, they've not exactly been 
coming thick and fast of late, so <laughs> everyone will forgive me if I can get Emiratiana over the line. Well, as you well know by now, uh, regular listeners of the podcast, if Lydia and I are together on a Friday, as we often are working for, for Racing TV, uh, there is a, there's a condition to your appearance on, the, on this show. Champagne, lots of it. Uh, no matter the time of day, indeed, many people would say as the music starts that, um, well, that was timely, wasn't it? It, it was. Uh, I ordered this too. I'm, I'm not, I hope I'm not going to get some PRS bill for, for this. Okay. <laughs> good point. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Anyway, listen, I, I'm just going to put, put it out there now. The, the music started inadvertently and it is in the background. In the foreground is Neil Phillips, the wine tipster, who has got not one but two bottles of brutally chilled Moet here. I have, Nick. Good morning to you. We love the music, don't we? Here we are, Friday at the Moet and Chandon July Festival. And I have some vintage Moet and Chandon this morning. You were, you were going to suggest non-vintage, but... Yeah, Lydia was very keen to try the vintage, weren't you, Lydia? I raised an eyebrow. <laughs> wow. And then we had vintage. So, I wanted to, so we've got 2013 vintage here from Moet and Chandon. And by the way, just to say, vintage champagne production is very small, really. It's only about 3 or 4%. And this was the first vintage champagne I ever tasted in my career. So, really? Yeah. Thank I you very much. remember buying a long time ago some 1978 Merton Chandon. And it's fantastic vintage. And I think sometimes we don't talk enough about vintage can, champagne. Can I ask a stupid question? Yeah. How long does champagne last? I mean, for example, now, what's the oldest bottle of champagne you can get away with drinking? Well, it could be from a great year, and it could be 20, 30 years, easily. So if you get a really fantastic year, some of the years we had, like 2002, 10 out of 10, classic vintage. You can still drink that, not oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. As long as you've kept the wine well. I had a question from a guest yesterday about this, saying they were, you know, where, how should they keep their champagnes? And you need to keep them in a kind of 8 to 10 degrees. Be consistent. You can't suddenly bring them out. No vibration, no sunlight. If you do that, you've got a chance with a great classic vintage to keep it for 20 years. Right. Cheers. So this is the Moen Chandon Grand Vintage 2013. Ruby Walsh has got a glass over there as well. <laughs> Absolutely. We've just to, to, mark his, to mark his outstanding contribution to this podcast. Absolutely. There are many things to celebrate this week, so... Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that, it, it works for me. Oh, that's lovely. That's very, very nice indeed. <laughs> I, I, will be, I will be keeping this entire glass. <laughs> Lydia's very happy. Lydia's very happy. There you go, Lydia. I've looked after you here, and Nick, and Ruby as well. Well, thanks for joining us, Ruby. Uh, but I'll tell you something about this. Come on, Lydia, give us a tasting note, because you were no, so no, you go were, down at Epsom with no, your tasting notes. this is notes. embarrassing, because I said to you, you're the expert, and when you use the adjectives, I recognise what you were okay. talking about. For me to actually come up with the adjectives, no. Okay, so our, our food and wine, wine, wine pod here. So what you've got here is one of the things to recognise is the acidity, the freshness, which you're getting on the sides here, your mouth here. And one of the things you really pick up, that crispness on the finish, and you've got that creaminess. One thing I'd like to do as well is when you've tasted... Just think how long does that flavour last for? Because it's a long time. It's got a really long finish here. Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, a little some Meunier in there. I've always loved vintage champagne from Moen Chandon. I think it's overlooked really as a vintage champagne. And what do you think, Nick? I, I love it. I love it, and I know what you mean. Yeah. But you know, I'm a I'm a big, <laughs> He's a big Chardonnay man. Yeah, I'm you a, are. I'm you a, know? 
white burgundy yes, man. Absolutely, and I think it just shows you. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it just shows you, but what you actually get, how what Chardonnay does in the Champagne region, and it's real class. Ruby, what do you think? <laughs> I'm an ex shocky I mean, anything that's free. <laughs> I really enjoy these uh, morning sessions uh, with Neil, not just for the obvious reasons that I'm um, holding up and, and drinking from a, a glass of champagne in it, but I'm learning so much as well. No, honestly, it's really, really good. I, I've learned that Nick's a white burgundy man for starters. I concur, and I was listening to how long the champagne last. I did get a vintage bottle of champagne, but somebody when I retired, I was thinking, oh, Jesus, please say it lasts more than three years. So that is, that will still be alive for myself and my wife to have at some stage. That's right. Well, come on over, Ruby. We'll put it on a podcast. <laughs> right. Neil, da- down below us here, you've got three bigger goblets with a, with a, with a white bottle of Moet. Um, I mean, I, I don't know about the white, but... Anyway, you're going to explain what the principle here is. Well, what we've got here, Nick, we've got the Moet and Chandon dining experience on the inside of the track, which is wonderful. So guests are coming along today. They're having a different Moet and Chandon champagne paired with each course. And that's a great experience for guests, because for a lot of people, that's a new thing. Because most of the time, with bubbles, when, when you actually get... You know, so when the food arrives, you know what it's like, then the people start drinking still wine. So this is giving people a different experience there. We've just got that here. Now... This is Moet and Chandon Imperial Rosé. And, and this is their ice. So what I'm going to do is, we've got some ice already in the, in the goblets here. And we're just going to pour this rosé over the ice. This is the whole pouring serving piece here. And it looks great and enticing. So Lydia, there you go. So not content with one glass of uh, Grand Reserve, Moen and Chandon. Lydia's now got a, what can only be described as a bucket <laughs> of, of, of rosé champagne. I mean, the chance of us getting through this afternoon's broadcast is... I, I, it's a must-watch. Must watch. I can't even say it now. It's a must-watch afternoon, I think. This is making Keith Floyd look sober. <laughs> I, I've just declined a second one because God knows what I could say. <laughs> I remember taste. One of, the, one, of the things, one of the things to say is here, so where we go, go on Nick, you can just have a try as well. Um, one of the big pieces we're doing here, we've got the white imperialized as well. So what we're doing is, one of these is served with a dessert, as part of the Merit and Chandon fine dining experience, the other with afternoon tea as well. And one of the pieces here is, it's just bringing some new people into Champagne. That was the piece, that's where they came up with it and said, why don't we just do this in a way that picking up some people that don't know much about champagne, want to try something that's not bone dry. You know, the brute mm. vintage was dry. This is a different piece. This is fun. This is summer. It's just like the music. Shame the music's gone off, actually. It was just really no, broken. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this, is, this, is, this is lovely. I can see it's sort of lovely and bubbly and, and fresh and nice for, for people during the summer. It's not really my thing. I'm going to put yeah. this bucket down. <laughs> and pick back up the elegant vintage glass. Now, are you, are you, is it the, over there, the marquees that um, Nick, Nick and I were discussing earlier, is that where the tasting experience is? Yes, it is. So we've actually got a, 70 guests in today, so they're having all the five courses there. So it's great, they have canapes on arrival, they'll be arriving very shortly, and they have, mm. you know, imperial multi-vintage Moet and Chandra, so really their house style, which is very important to be consistent about that. I'll pass on the vegan couscous bonbons, if you don't mind. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, and they have trees to hide under. 
I, there's going to be a lovely amount of shade here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'll be in that yes. pre parade yeah, ring all afternoon, well, won't you? Afternoon. It's going to be. It's a great, Cheers. great view. Of, Cheers, Ruby. It's a great view of the July course. And guests are having that experience. I go over and just do a bit of background about Moet and Chandon because you've got to, actually a bit of history. Mm. Started in 1743. You think about it when the jockey club started. You know, great history. Now is it the biggest champagne house producing around twenty oh, music's back on now, twenty-eight million bottles, Nick. <laughs> right. I, whilst I, whilst I'm enjoying this um this uh this this drinking fest at this <laughs> unearthly hour in the morning, um Lydia, you've got to give me a tip for the weekend. <laughs> I have. Uh, I'm going to go in the 145 at York tomorrow, Saturday, uh, with Isla K for Nigel Tinkler. Excellent. Isla K for Nigel Tinkler at York. 145 at York on Saturday. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, Neil, thank you very much. Pleasure, Nick. Great to be on. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget that Charlotte will be back from 9 o'clock this evening with all the interviews for tomorrow's racing on Saturday and the best bits of the podcast this week. And there have been some good bits. They, oh, they absolutely have. There have been some, some really good bits, not least this bit. No more Gosnan de Tory, though. That's boring now. It's July Cup Day tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again after the weekend. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Thank you.